Hello, and welcome to Starting the States, Episode 3, Part 2 of Piecing Together Pennsylvania. Last time, we left off discussing Pennsylvania's diverse religious and ethnic population. You may recall that Penn wanted to create a colony where his fellow Quakers would be free to practice their beliefs without persecution, leading to the construction of a colony that prioritized religious freedom. This left the doors open for people from many countries in Europe with mixed religious backgrounds to settle in the colony. Pennsylvania was pretty much a mutt. But as one might imagine, this non-homogeneous population led to conflict within the colony, a conflict that was brought to the surface by the beginning of the American Revolution. An example of the conflicts caused by Pennsylvania's diverse population is the hostility directed at the colony's German population. Some of Pennsylvania's English population held a distaste for the large German one. For those that wanted to create a uniform colony of Englishmen that was equals with the citizens of Britain, the Germans posed a threat. Founding Father Benjamin Franklin estimated that nearly one-third of the entire population of Pennsylvania was German. But he was far from finding his conclusion wunderbar, I, I mean wonderful. Franklin very much wanted Pennsylvania to solely be an English colony. He even asked, quote, Why should Pennsylvania, founded by the English, become a colony of aliens, who will shortly be so numerous as to Germanize us, instead of our anglifying them? and will never adopt our language or customs, any more than they can acquire our complexion. A comment that his biographer Edmund S. Morgan writes would be viewed as, quote, politically incorrect in 1751, as it would be today. Clearly, even those as deified as Franklin are not without fault. We are all human after all, not gods. Light bigotry aside, what Franklin is saying is that he desired a colony of Englishmen backed by England, not a state independent from it. He and the Quaker-controlled government held this view, and it impacted how the colony reacted to its citizens' calls for independence on the eve of the American Revolution. But before I go into that, I believe it is essential to highlight some key contributions Benjamin Franklin made for Pennsylvania. I'm not going to lay out a rough biography of him here. Instead, I'm going to highlight some of the important actions he took in the colony. In Edmund S. Morgan's biography of Benjamin Franklin, he emphasizes that Franklin wanted nothing more than to be useful, and he believed that public service was the way to do it. He utilized his curiosity, intelligence, and kindness to construct charitable community institutions in Philadelphia to enrich the lives of the people that lived there. He developed a library book loan system so citizens who could not afford to purchase their own collections could have access to the knowledge and literature of those that did. He also created an academy that went on to become America's first university, the University of Pennsylvania. When the French and Indian War broke out, Franklin knew that the colony had to protect itself. He created the first volunteer militia for the colony, but knew that this was not enough to defend its vast borders. So he decided that fortifications needed to be constructed. Since he was not getting financial support from the colony, he created a raffle where people would bet money to win money, similar to a 50-50 raffle, in order to fund the project. These are just a few examples of the contributions Franklin made to Philadelphia and Pennsylvania. If you are interested in learning more about Franklin, I recommend picking up Edmund S. Morgan's biography on him, aptly titled Benjamin Franklin. Okay, now back to Pennsylvania on the eve of the American Revolution. A somewhat surprising fact is that it was slow to join the other colonies. An oddity seeing that Pennsylvania's home to Philadelphia the city where the Declaration of Independence was written and signed. 
it is hard to imagine that the call for liberty was slow to catch on. But historians claim that at the same time citizens of other colonies were calling for a revolt against Britain, the citizens of Pennsylvania were having an internal revolution of their own. Historian Paul Salsemp dubbed this as Pennsylvania's, quote, revolution within a revolution. The cause for it goes all the way back to one of the original reasons William Penn wanted to settle a colony in the first place, and what I outlined at the beginning of the episode, to create a home for Quakers and other religious minorities free from the persecution found in Europe. Salsom writes that Penn's, quote, desire to build a flourishing and prosperous colony led him to stimulate immigration. So generous was his policy that the province soon became a haven for the oppressed of all religious sects and nationalities, end quote. Because of Pennsylvania's immense population of persecuted and oppressed religious and ethnic minorities, it naturally created an atmosphere of radicalism that led to a power grab among the various factions. The American Revolution provided the opportunity for each of them to express their influence in the colony. Similarly, there was a clash of economic interests between the agricultural west and the mercantile east of the colony. The western frontiersmen were dismayed with the Quakers' opposition to bearing arms in defense of their expanding borders. Clashes with Native Americans increased, and the frontiersmen were unable to convince the Quaker-controlled assembly to act. They were helpless. Similar feelings existed in Philadelphia, among the lower-class laborers who did not have the property qualifications to participate in government. Selsom writes that the unification of these groups from the East and the West would spell the end of the old order in Pennsylvania. Adding to the upheaval in the colony was the turbulent political climate in the decade leading up to the Revolution. Political parties were vying for control of the Assembly, claiming to back what the people wanted. Historian G.B. Warden writes that in the 1760s, Franklin and the Quakers in Pennsylvania's elected assembly championed the cause of liberty and democracy against the hereditary rule of the Penn family and the proprietary appointees in the executive branch of local government. But Franklin only wanted independence from the proprietary, not England. Franklin wanted Penn and the proprietary to surrender control of the government to the crown. In order for the crown to even consider this, he had to go along with their highly unfavorable taxation policies in the colonies, rather than work against them. Likewise, the proprietors could not afford to give in to demands to resist revenue-raising measures from England for fear of losing their own political status in the colony. Neither of these groups were willing to risk infuriating Britain for fear that they would lose political power. The lack of opposition to Britain from the conservative Quaker assembly amplified the distrust felt among the various ethnic and religious minorities in Pennsylvania. With the dominoes lined in place, the downfall of the old order Quaker assembly was sealed by their failure to acknowledge the complaints of the various minority factions in the colony. Fearing the growing influence of ethnic groups such as the Scotch-Irish and Germans, the Quaker and proprietary political rivals joined forces. They closed off entry of their ranks from outsiders, in hopes of maintaining a monopoly on political power in the colony. But what they failed to understand was just how quickly the call for independence had spread across the colony. The semi-authoritarian assembly, the unjust taxation by the British, and the failure to respond to it by the Quaker-controlled government had coalesced into the very rationale behind the call for revolution. The disenfranchised people of the colony began to take power into their own hands. Philadelphia not only became the epicenter for Pennsylvania's revolution, it became the center for the entire American Revolution. 
the Continental Congress, which was the elected voice of the people in every colony, met at Carpenter's Hall and the State House in the city of Philadelphia. On a side note, the State House, or Independence Hall as it is known today, still stands, and it is a must-see for any budding American history enthusiast. I went there myself, and I must say it is a magical experience. Walking into the same room where the Founding Fathers constructed the Constitution, you can almost visualize each one of them sitting there. It's not every day you get to be in the room that changed the course of history. Anyway, it is just breathtaking, and I cannot recommend taking a trip there enough. Okay, so back to what I was saying. Supporters of the revolutionary movement created committees that voiced the call to break from British tyranny. Instead of shunning religious and ethnic minorities, like the Quaker Assembly did, they embraced the diversity in the colony, unifying them under the banner of freedom and liberty. People who were originally unable to participate politically now found themselves at the very center of politics. Committees began to blossom in every county and town in the colony. According to historians Wayne Brockelman and Owen Ireland, quote, in the aftermath of the Tea Party crisis of 1773-1774, Presbyterians, especially Scotch-Irish Presbyterians, came to the forefront as leaders of the revolutionary movement. Men like Charles Thompson, who organized committees to protest against the British actions in Boston, Joseph Reed, who did the same and became president of the provincial convention that called for support of the colony's Continental Congress in writing a new constitution for Pennsylvania. These men, and the people they inspired, began the sequence of events that would lead to the end of the Quaker-dominated assembly and give rise to the unheard voices of religious minorities in the colony. But the old order liked holding a monopoly on power and would not go down without a fight. Go figure. In 1774, Pennsylvania's governor, John Penn, the grandson of founder William Penn, refused calls to gather the assembly to devise a response to Britain's implementation of the Boston Port Act. The act was meant to enforce Britain's authority over the radicals in Boston. Penn even tried to suggest each colony express their grievances to Britain independently, instead of through a joint colonial congress. Logically, this did not sit well with the revolutionaries in Pennsylvania who became even more incensed by the governor's failure to act. Adding to the assembly's already long list of not doing things was their failure to respond to the opening shots of the American Revolution at Lexington and Concord. The radical fervor became too much for the Quaker assembly. Slowly but surely, their grasp on the Pennsylvanian assembly began to weaken. By 1776, the fate of the old order was sealed. The Continental Congress were ready to make the call for independence. There was just one hang-up. They needed the support of Pennsylvania's Quaker Assembly. After finally caving to pressure from the independence movement, the Assembly allowed representatives to attend the Continental Convention to decide the fate of the colonies. But those old Quakers had one more trick up their sleeves. They instructed the delegates not to vote for independence. Fine, we will send delegates, we just won't let them vote. I am sure that won't backfire. At that point, Pennsylvania's revolutionaries and the Continental Congress had about enough of the Assembly's games. On May 10, 1776, John Adams introduced a resolution to the Congress that urged colonial assemblies to create governments that deny allegiance to any crown, supports the happiness, safety, and well-being of the people that live there, and all America in general. The revolutionaries saw this as their chance to finally expel the old regime once and for all, Committee members from all counties in Pennsylvania met to determine the fate of the old government. The Quakers had no chance of stemming the tide. 
For too long had they repressed minority populations in Pennsylvania and failed to answer the American colonies' calls for independence. According to historian Paul Selsam, the revolutionaries considered themselves the true representatives of the colony. They took over responsibility of the government and went to work writing Pennsylvania a new constitution. The colony William Penn had formed all those years ago ceased to exist. The constitution that was drafted in Pennsylvania in 1776 became an important precursor for future constitutions in the United States. It provided the model for a government ran by and for the people, without the constraints imposed by a monarchy. It also reflected the internal strife that Pennsylvania faced. Each former minority faction wanted to exercise influence on the creation of the document. It called for a unicameral assembly, uni meaning one, unlike the bicameral legislature the United States has today, with the Senate and the House of Representatives. Because of this, it was largely free from the checks and balances that we think of when looking at the government structure in the United States today. The assembly legislature had nearly all the power. The executive had a veto power, but he was elected by the assembly, and the members of the Supreme Court could be removed at any time for loosely defined infractions such as misbehavior. Not everyone was happy about the new constitution. Law scholar Robert Williams suggests that its radical democratic vision influenced debate among other colonies who were in the process of constructing their own. Founding father Benjamin Rush called it a, quote, mobocracy due to it being susceptible to mob rule because of its lack of checks and balances. Debate raged, and by 1790 a new constitution was drafted that included a bicameral legislature and more checks to government. Pennsylvania's first constitution should not be overlooked. Its successes and defects helped provide answers to the questions about how a republic should look and operate in order to represent the people the best. As a result, its influence on the formation of other state constitutions and the countries cannot be stressed enough. It is also important to mention that in 1780, the Pennsylvania legislature passed an act calling for the gradual abolition of slavery in the state, a critical first step in ending slavery in the Western world. It is hard to overstate the key role Pennsylvania played in the American Revolution. Not only did it hold Philadelphia, the mother city of America, and the first capital of the newly formed country, it also supplied the war effort. Pennsylvania's gunpowder production was crucial for the supply of the Continental Army in the early years of the war. This is somewhat ironic, seeing that the state was heavily dominated by Quaker pacifists, but uh, hey, whatever. It was also the place General George Washington made his notorious winter quarters at Valley Forge. Many soldiers died from starvation, sickness, and exposure. Pennsylvania was also the site of many battles during the war. The Battle of Brandywine is one of the more famous ones. In the episode on Delaware, I discussed the Battle of Cooch's Bridge. Well, that battle was a precursor for this one. General Howe and the British Army were moving north to take Philadelphia. Washington was determined to stop them from doing so, and prepared a defensive along the Brandywine River. Unfortunately, Washington was flanked by the British forces. The surprise caused the American Army to put up a rush defensive that failed and resulted in their defeat. The battle's fame does not come so much from what happened during the battle, as it does from what happened right before it. A few days before, British sharpshooter Patrick Ferguson and his men were scouting ahead to see what the Americans were up to, when two mountain men came riding up near them. They ducked in the undergrowth and took aim, but then Ferguson told his men not to shoot the riders. He later recounted, quote, 
As I was within the distance at which in the quickest firing I could have lodged half a dozen balls into about him before he was out of my reach, I had only to determine, but it was not pleasant to fire at the back of an unoffending individual who was acquitting himself coolly of his duty, and so I let him alone. Ferguson decided that shooting a man without him knowing was unchivalrous. The historic implications of this chilling moment cannot be stressed enough. It is still argued by historians, but evidence suggests that the man Ferguson decided not to shoot was General George Washington himself. Despite this close call, the war for independence was ultimately won by the Americans. When the Articles of Confederation were scrapped and the Constitutional Convention created the document we know today, Pennsylvania became the second state to ratify the Constitution on December 12, 1787. When piecing together the history that led up to the creation of the Pennsylvania state we know today, it becomes evident that from the very beginning it played an important role in helping to define what the United States stood for. William Penn's desire to create a colony where his fellow Quakers could practice their beliefs without persecution influenced the belief in religious freedom that Americans value today. But on the opposite side, Pennsylvania also shows us what happens when a formerly persecuted group becomes the one that discriminates against others, and what happens when those disenfranchised people come together and revolt against their oppressors. Because of this, the story of Pennsylvania is almost synonymous with the greater American story for independence. Their internal political upheaval helped lay the groundwork for how the United States would come into being. Pennsylvania was a keystone, but not just geographically, it held the colonies together by being the epicenter for the creation of the United States. Pennsylvania also mimicked a keystone in how it kept its various competing factions unified under a single banner by ensuring a government and constitution that represented all the people. In this sense, Pennsylvania was the key to creating the United States as we know it today. Next time, we'll be taking a look at New Jersey, the third state to ratify the Constitution. Follow me on Twitter at StartTheStates to stay up to date. Questions, comments, concerns, send me an email at startingthestates at gmail.com. And as always, thank you for listening. Your support is greatly appreciated. <laughs>